Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode will be tangling with Luke Sharp, who regular listeners might remember from the terrible Chasms of Malice gamebook a few episodes past, and the moderately bad Star Strider a few episodes before that. Daggers of Darkness is his third gamebook, Will Third Time Be the Charm? I'm both excited and apprehensive to find out. Before we get into that, I have a new patron to thank. This is a kind soul who's gone to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and put their hand in their pocket to support my nonsense. It's thanks to my patrons that I'm able to do a bonus episode every month in 2023, so their generosity means more podcasts for all. As well as my undying gratitude, all patrons receive a bunch of gaming material, and I'm currently in the early stages of designing a new adventure gamebook, which everyone who supports me will receive. I'm going to be trying to document my design process in a series of posts over on Patreon, so if you want to find out how I go about creating games, then hopefully that'll be an added bonus. So, it just remains for me to say Penny... Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy your gaming bits. Now let's have a look at Daggers of Darkness. Daggers of Darkness was written by Luke Sharp, with internal illustrations by Martin McKenna, and cover art by Les Edwards. The cover is very strange. It depicts a shaven-headed man who seems to be using a pair of tigers as some kind of jet ski. There's a big bird flying behind him, and he seems to be armed with a mace that is also a flail. So it's a stick with a big spiky head on top of it. But on top of that, there's some long bits of string which have more spiky things attached at the other end of them. It's one of those pictures where the more you look at it, the stranger it gets. I will say that the large, shaven-headed gentleman does appear to be having the best time using tigers as a jet ski. Yeah, look it up if you've not seen this one. It's a very strange bit of art. Martin McKenna, who sadly died in 2020, was under 18 when he did the internal art for this book, and he has suggested that he wasn't very happy with how it turned out. I'll be paying close attention to the art, but a swift glance suggests that he doesn't have much to be embarrassed about. In some ways, I prefer art that does have that slightly quirky off-kilter, not necessarily 100% perfectly rendered quality. Let's talk about traditional rules, an area where Luke Sharp has not traditionally covered himself in glory. He's not short of ideas, it's more the implementation where he struggles, and once again, there's some intriguing concepts here, one that's pretty good, one that I think is not so good. The first one is poison. At some point in this story, we will get poisoned, and as the adventure progresses, the poison spreads throughout our body. This is mechanically implemented by a little picture of a human, who looks more like a robot, on the record sheet, which is divided into 24 sections. As the story progresses, you shade in the sections on the body when the text instructs you to do so, and if you fill in the whole body, then it's curtains. I really like this idea. It's essentially a better version of the time units that Sharp used in Star Strider. It puts you on the clock, but in a way that can be stretched or concertinaed at will without it seeming weird. It also has the possibility that you could come across some magical healing at points in the adventure and reduce the amount of poison that you've got, which is something that's a lot harder to do with time. Obviously, 
It's all about how it's implemented, but I am gently optimistic about this one. The other mechanic relates to a set of magic medallions that we can find on our journey. There's six in total, and each one allows you to walk away from three lost fights. Instead of dying, you get four stamina back. Sadly, you also have to reduce your skill and luck by one and fill in three poison sections each time you use this power. It's also not quite clear what walking away from combat means in practice. It's all quite vaguely worded, and again we're seeing someone who maybe just doesn't have that grasp on how to write rules that make sense. This is honestly quite an ugly mechanic just on the face of it, so if you get all six medallions you can walk away from a whopping 18 fights but you'll have run out of skill or luck well before that point. There's nothing in the rules that specifically states that reducing your skill or luck to zero would be fatal but I'm guessing that by the time you've got a skill of minus five for example you're not going to be really fit for continuing adventures in any real sense. If you use the power of the medallion eight times, you will die of poison anyway, so having more than three medallions is functionally meaningless. Glancing at the text, it looks like you often have to mark off a poison section after a fight, and again, it's not clear whether the three points of poison replace that poison or add to it. It's classic Luke Sharp. Why have six magic medallions available when you'll literally never get to use the final three? It's obvious that He's had an idea and not thought about the actual implications at all. Maybe it'll function better in play, but I somewhat doubt it. We've also got 10 provisions, and we get the traditional magical potion of skill, stamina, or luck, so at least there's plenty of healing on offer. We also have 6 gold coins, one of which is a lucky gold coin, which can only be used when the text specifically instructs it. I think this rule section's wound up being longer than the rule section I did in the much more elaborate Destiny Quest book I just covered in the last bonus episode, which is testament, I guess, to how clean and well-designed the rules are for that game book. Obviously, there's a lot less to say when the systems clearly work than when you're covering what does appear to be already an absolute dog's dinner. Still, I have rolled up a character who... I've decided to call Numpty Waferthin. They have a skill of 11, a stamina of 18, and a luck of 11. Let's get into Daggers of Darkness. You open your eyes. Above you stands a creature swathed in a dark cloak. He is holding a long dagger which he is about to plunge into your body. You try to move, but you cannot. You are transfixed by his staring, unblinking assassin's eyes. The blade gleams in the moonlight as it flashes down towards your throat. Begone, creature of the night, a familiar voice cries. Homrath days, Blickneth Varqua. The dagger falls with no power and just grazes your shoulder. Just before you swoon at the fiery torment, you catch a glimpse of the departing figure of the would-be assassin. And then you turn your head and see Galley's gentle eyes before you black out. When you awake, the pain in your shoulder is a dull throb. Galley is bathing the wound and chanting in a strange tongue. He sees that you are watching him and says, Welcome back. I feared the dagger held a greater evil beyond even my powers. But you are quickly recovered. 
Well met, brave Cousinid, one of Segrex Select. But how do you... You begin to ask. This inn is dangerous now, he says. I will take you to a safer place, and then all will be explained. The drinking companion you knew as Galley leads you into the keep at Gorak, up a spiral staircase and into a large room full of dusty books, jars and bottles, small furry creatures and birds. Suddenly you realise that Galley is none other than Astragal the Wizard, who we saw in Chasms of Malice. Is it a good idea to remind me that I played Chasms of Malice? No, no it is not. He explains that there is little time, only recently he has learned that Segrek, ruler of Kazan, died the previous year, and that the vizier Chingiz suppressed the news and sent out the Mamlik assassins to kill all the select before they could undertake their journey to the throne at Sharabbos. He tells you to sit and rest, for there is much to be done. As he leaves the room, you hear him ordering the guards to let no one in. You sit back, rubbing your shoulder, and watch the birds flutter in and out of the window. By your side, a small book lies open. You pick it up and read a very familiar story. Who doesn't love reading things they already know well? It's hard to put my finger on what I dislike so much about Luke Sharp's style. There's nothing obviously wrong with his prose, but it's just so emotionally flat. I get that Maybe he's trying not to project emotions onto the reader's character to try and create more of a sense of immersion. But I personally find it easier to identify with my adventurer when there is a bit of emotional context provided for me. Anyway, let's read this very familiar story. Kazan. Very little is known of this strange wild land. It is situated to the west of Gorak, see above, and south of the Swordflow, in the extreme southwest corner of Kool. The capital city is Sharabbos, where sits the throne of Kazan. The remainder of the land is divided into six tribal regions, each fiercely independent and warlike. The Kazanids are renowned for their bravery and their acceptance of any creature or being that can stand up to their hard, and some would say savage, tests. There have always been rumours of the presence of gold in the greater Ikhans, the range of mountains to the south of Sharabbos, but no prospector has ever returned with firm evidence. Kazan has a very strange ritual of succession to the throne, but the system has meant that every ruler of Kazan has been very brave, strong and quick-witted. Those parents who choose to nominate their children as heirs to Ushan Koja, or the Select, bring their babies to Sharabbos, where they have to undergo a series of tests. The parents of those children who pass the tests are given money to bring up the infant in the approved manner. At the age of nine, the child is exiled from Kazan and must roam the lands of Kool, making his or her own way and surviving the rigours of loneliness and fear. When a ruler dies, the select are summoned by messengers who travel the countryside, leaving secret symbols in traditional locations. They must make their way to Kazan, enter the great mazes, and obtain as many of the clan medallions as possible. They then have to reach Sharabbos, where they must be the first to sit upon the throne. The Kazanids are a very secretive people, and the mystery of what happens in Sharabbos has never been revealed. Suddenly, your reading is interrupted by Astragal rushing back into the room, clutching the evil dagger of the Mamlik assassin. This dagger was forged by Chingis with a very strong death spell. There is no way to recovery but to hand it back to its maker, Chingis. You must hurry. 
You secure the dagger in the lining of your boots. So begins your journey to the throne of Kazan. You must make your way through the wild lands, take the test of the clans, enter the mazes and carry as many of their medallions as you can to Sherabbos. Once there, you must find the great throne. All the while, you will be sought out by the Mamluk assassins who serve the evil vizier Chingiz. Caution must be your watchword. You may encounter necromancers, undead beings of no physical substance but possessing great powers of evil magic. Avoid them, if you can. Unfortunately, as Astragal explained, you have been scratched by a death spell dagger. Your body has been infected by the evil of Chingis. The poison will spread slowly through your body, but it will have no real effect until it has travelled through every part, and then death will be sudden and violent. There's actually quite a lot to like in this setup, I think. The idea of being one of the elect trying to win for yourself the throne of Kazan, that's really cool. The idea of this elaborate ritual of succession, that's really cool. I like that a lot. It's very clear what the stakes are. It makes a change from just having to travel to find one magic doohickey to oppose the evil wizard. Okay, there is still an evil wizard, but yeah, it does feel different to anything that we've come across before. Astragal leads you to the boundary of the lands of Gorak, shakes you by the hand and wishes you good luck. By the order of the Mage Council, he cannot enter Kazan, but he hints that he will make attempts to contact you from time to time. He waves farewell as you begin to climb up into the mountains that divides the two lands. Your shoulder starts to ache and you know that the poison is beginning to work its way through your body. Mark off two poison units. So we now have 22 poison units remaining. You climb for many hours, passing from green fields to the cold lands up above the snow line. The snow hardens underfoot and the going gets tough. You are exhausted, but you know that you cannot stop. Deduct one stamina. Stamina now 17. Eventually you come to the mountain pass known as Drago's Gate. An ancient stone obelisk marks the Kazanid frontier. On the rock, a body sprawls a dagger planted in its chest. You notice an open backpack lying on the snow by the obelisk. Do you wish to take any of the objects that you see scattered around the backpack, or do you want to inspect the body first? There is a picture of the body sprawled on the ancient stone obelisk, which has a horse on it, and you can see the mountain pass behind it. Yeah, I like it. It is arguably a little bit cartoonish, but it's got plenty of energy to it. The guy's head hanging down over the obelisk, the dagger in his chest, his one hand clutching the dagger, the other uh, flung out and curled with agony, and you can see that there's um, icicles dangling from, from a bit of him, suggesting he's been here for some while. Yeah, I think it's really good. Uh, let's inspect the body. You go over to the body. The dagger protruding from it is exactly the same as the one that wounded you and infected you with its poison. Suddenly you realise that the man is not quite dead. His eyes open, and he looks at you and speaks. Oh, the Mamluks. Uh, no, left me here. Yeah, for dead. Got on their evil black steeds and rode off on the path to the left. Ah. The death spell dagger begins to hiss. The body wastes away to a skeleton, and the possessions surrounding it dissolve in smoke. You decide not to hang around, so you take the right-hand path. After a short time, you come to another fork in the track. 
do you choose the left path or the right? Well, again, it's just so emotionally flat, the description. It's just a list of things happening. I recently read The Maltese Falcon by um, Dashiell Hammett, and one of the stylistic oddities of that book is that at no point do you get any insight into the characters' inner lives. It's literally just a kind of list of the things they do and say. But Dashiell Hammett manages to invest it with so much tension and plenty of emotion. Whereas here, it just feels like I'm reading a shopping list. You know, item one, murder knife. Item two, not quite dead, adventurer. Item three, skeleton. Still, we've got a left and right choice. And even though he suggests the assassins took the left-hand path, I am bound by tradition, unbreakable shackles of tradition, that when we come to our first left-right decision, we always go left. So let's hope this doesn't just end in a swift death. You walk along the path, keeping one eye on some large birds circling overhead. The snow has stopped and the track begins to slope downwards. Soon you find yourself walking by a fast-flowing stream. As you bend over to drink some water, you see a shadow looming over you. It is a wizened old crone, dressed in tatters that might once have been finery. She introduces herself as Galena and asks you if you would like to earn some gold. She wants you to do a little job for her. Do you agree to help her or decide to ignore her request and carry on? I will agree to help her. When you agree to her request, she rubs her hands with glee and leads you up a small hill to a blasted oak. She explains that some fiends have robbed her and have concealed her precious treasure chest in the depths of the hollow tree. Can you get it for me, my lovely? She begs. You climb the oak and find at the top a dark hole. Climbing in, you drop down and find yourself in a large cavern encircled by tree roots. In the gloom, you can make out a metal chest surrounded by whitened bones and odd bits of armour. Suddenly, two hellhounds appear from out of the dark. Barking, howling, and frothing at the mouth. You must fight each hellhound in turn. The first hellhound has a skill of seven and a stamina of six. And the second hellhound has the same skill and stamina as the first. So, for the first time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the hellhounds. I lost two stamina points, taking my stamina down to 15. Having defeated the hellhounds, I must mark off Two poison units on the adventure sheet. Twenty poison units remaining. You manage to drag the chest up out of the tree and you climb down with it. Before the old woman can reach it, you force open the lid and it is full of gold. Do you help yourself or let the old hag get her hands on the chest and pay you your due? Bit rude. We all get old if we're lucky enough. Gold is very rarely particularly useful in adventure game books, so I'm just going to let the old woman get her hands on the chest, honestly. You allow the old woman to gloat over her treasure chest. Finally, she whispers a spell and a golden snake rises out of the chest. Crooning to it, she strokes its head and slips it into her pocket. Then she hands you 15 gold coins. Gold coins now 20 plus our lucky gold coin. She makes the following speech. You have helped me, brave adventurer. Now I may be of some help to you. I am the repository of many secrets. What do you wish to know? You decide to reveal to her some details of your quest for the throne. Ah, Segrex Select, you are in great danger. 
Chinggis is overturning the great traditions. To achieve ultimate success, you must seek the medallions. Follow this path to Uras. When you stand before the entrance to the great maze, look to the top left for the pattern that is the key to the maze. Remember, you must enter from the top or the north. I know the maze well, for I helped fashion it when I was young, and my powers were keen. Without another word, she picks up the chest and disappears down the path. You set off in the opposite direction. The path you are taking is difficult and rough. To your left lies an easier, flatter route that leads in the direction of some birds circling in the sky. Do you take the left-hand path or keep on the path indicated by the old woman? Oh, well, I'm no longer bound by the traditions of my people to take the left-hand choice, so... I will follow the path as indicated by the woman. You walk along the path for many hours. The mountains behind you recede. The path grows less steep and the countryside becomes much greener. You cross several small streams and you notice more and more trees until at last you find yourself at the edge of a huge forest. Within you can hear strange creatures screaming and calling to one another. All this walking has made you tired. Do you stop to rest or do you wish to carry on quickly into the dark forest? So this is actually a vaguely interesting decision because stopping to rest could lead to an attack. But at the same time, I was warned in the opening section that exertion might speed the path of the poison. So it'd be nice to think that if I choose to go quickly into the forest, I might end up making my poison situation worse so i actually am going to rest for a little bit you stop to rest and eat some of your provisions add four points to your stamina non-consensual eating eh still nothing like a nice pear tart to tan to uh really put some vim in your step after some time your suspicion that you can hear something moving in the undergrowth becomes a certainty you are just pulling out your sword when suddenly an arrow is fired from behind a tree to your left you move quickly, test your luck, roll a 9, uh, my luck of 11, so I am lucky. If you are unlucky, it hits you and passes through your shoulder. Um, if you are lucky, the arrow misses. A black-robed figure drops to the ground. A second glance reveals that this is a woman with long black hair and evil-looking eyes. Before you can do anything to defend yourself, you are surrounded by six similar figures. You are helpless. Very exciting. You are bound with leather thongs that seem to get tighter the more you struggle. Nothing is taken from you, however, and you are led through the dark forest until you reach a small settlement in the clearing. The silent figures now reveal themselves by removing their hoods. There are no men in their group. One of them speaks to you. Intruder, you have trespassed into Owl Shriek, the penalty for which is death, unless you can prove yourself both strong and fit to live. Actually, I did not trespass into Owl Shriek. I literally sat down outside Owl Shriek to eat some delicious baked goods. So, again, I think that might be just the author not having the tightest grasp on his own book. Anyway, we've got to prove ourselves and the choice is ours. Do we want to take run the arrow or undertake the test of three cuts? Uh, let's run the arrow. Sure, I can outrun an arrow. How fast do arrows even travel? Eight, nine miles an hour? I, Omorphina, announce the run of the arrow. A group of huntresses, all dressed in black leather, quickly form a line. Your bonds are removed as one of them shoots an arrow into the forest. 
They motion for you to start running, and you set off, slowly at first, then picking up speed, which is exactly the opposite way I run. You see the arrow stuck into a tree trunk, and when you pass, you hear a whoop as the Huntresses set off in pursuit of you. Throw three dice and add up their total. If this is greater than your current stamina, then the Huntresses have caught you, and you are immediately beheaded. So, instant death, early doors. I roll a three. I roll a one. I roll a three, making eight seven, which is well below my stamina of 18. In fact, I couldn't fail on 3d6. So we've outdistanced the hunters. You move fast through the undergrowth, but the path is difficult to follow and soon you become lost. Trying to find a way out, you stagger on in the dark forest. Suddenly you emerge into a clearing. In front of you stands a large, heavily armed troll who is gazing at a tree. Do you circle round past the troll, or do you approach him? Let's circle round past the troll. Seems to be busy with some, you know, troll stuff. There's no sense in getting ourselves into any trouble we don't actually need to. Circling around, you put your weight on something that gives under you. You fall and land in a pit full of sharp stakes. Test your luck. I uh, roll 11... My luck is 10, so I have failed and my luck is reduced to 9. If you are unlucky, you are speared in the thigh. Deduct 1 point from your skill. Skill now 10. 4 points from your stamina. Stamina now 14. And mark off 1 poison unit. 19 poison units remaining. So, those of you who are paying attention uh, will have noticed that this is exactly the same thing that happened outside the forest. A, another example of... Luke Sharp coming up with a mechanic or an encounter and then just reusing it a whole bunch. You stand up and see the troll peering at you from above. Yes, I was wondering how to get past that trap, he murmurs. He obligingly throws down a length of creeper and hauls you out. Somewhat shamefacedly, you thank him. I mean, it's a pit trap, you just walk round it. You approach the troll warily, his strength is formidable. He bows and introduces himself as Scrotch of the Vizier's own Trollfighter cohorts. He stands to attention, salutes, and then ruefully has to admit that he's lost. I'm due on guard at the Mogamil Road, and I'm already late. You agree to accompany him. You are surprised and pleased that he possesses a map. However, he holds it upside down, and it's obvious that he cannot read. The map is very accurate, and you are able to lead him out of the forest and on to the start of the Mogamil Road. Suddenly you are confronted by two trolls. On seeing you, they pull out their short swords. At the same time, they hurl abuse at Scrutch and call out to him to kill you. Do you want to dash to the right or the left? Uh, absent any context, I guess I'll dash to the right. This is already not, not really a great book. You charge into the bushes and encounter two more trolls who are waiting with swords drawn. Fight each in turn. The first troll has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 9. The second troll has a skill of 9 and a stamina of 9 for the second time. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the trolls, but sadly they reduced me to 6 stamina points. I also have to cross off 2 poison units, taking me down to 17. So, with my stamina very much reduced... If you survive, you climb into one of the tall trees where you hide as best you can. And while I'm hiding there, I'm going to eat two portions of provisions. So, 
Hacking a Monster Munch, and a Haggis, taking my stamina back up to 14. So, um, yeah, we're hiding up a tree, but then the next paragraph doesn't acknowledge that in any way, shape, or form. You set off along the track, which soon becomes a good, solid road. After many hours of walking, the land has flattened out to a grassy plain. You meet no one during all this time. Eventually, you hear the sound of a rider on the road behind you. There is little cover on this grassy plain. Do you decide to lie down in the grass and hope that you're not seen, or do you carry on like a normal traveller? Let's carry on like a normal traveller, trying to hide in some grass. I mean, grass can get genuinely pretty long, but it doesn't tell us how long the grass is, so we just have to guess. Uh, but yeah, we'll carry on like a normal traveller. Nonchalantly, you carry on walking as the rider gets nearer. Eventually, a cloaked figure on a steaming horse passes you and then stops. Who are you, stranger? asks a woman's voice. You are debating in your mind whether or not to trust her when you spot a dagger of darkness revealed by the sudden gust of wind that blows aside her cloak. She realises that you've seen the weapon, scowls and gallops off. Now, I think that up until this point, the daggers have been referred to as death spell daggers, assuming it is the same kind of dagger and not a different dagger. So congratulations to Luke Sharp for not even being consistent about whether the title of his book should have been Daggers of Darkness or Death Spell Daggers. She realises you've seen the weapon, scowls and gallops off. Now you'll have to decide whether to stay on the road or travel on the plane. Uh, travel on the plane? You think that the plane will be safer. Unfortunately, the land grows boggy and you are forced to weave your way around the marshy patches until you find it difficult to stay travelling in the right direction. A large bird flies overhead, sees you and flies off. In the distance you hear the sound of digging, and as you breast a slight rise you come across a marsh goblin burying something. Nearby lies a dead body. The creature senses you, screams that you shall not have his gold, and attacks. The marsh goblin has a skill of six and a stamina of six. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Marsh Goblin and I took zero damage. My stamina holding steady at 14. Have to mark off two poison units. If you win, you drag out the half-buried chest and find 25 gold coins in it. So 45 gold plus our special one. Suddenly, from the direction of the deep marshes, you hear riders. Do you hide until they have passed or run back to the road? Let's hide until they have passed. You find a good place to hide beneath a pile of loose turfs and stay there until you think any potential danger will be passed. You feel better after the rest. Add two points to your stamina. Stamina now 16. When you get up, you find yourself surrounded by a group of silent horsemen. What? Ah, oh, dearie me. Dearie, dearie me. Okay. Keep positive, keep positive. Let's continue. A miserable-looking orc is chained to one of the horses, and there are griff hawks circling above the group. One of the riders moves towards you, and introduces himself formally as Boris Canterstrike. He demands to know your business in these lands of the Bogomils. Do you reveal that you are one of Segrek's select, or do you tell them that you are a travelling merchant? I will go with honesty on this occasion. You tell the horseman that you are one of Segrek's select. This makes the riders sit up and look at you with greater interest. Boris walks his horse around you and then speaks. You follow a difficult path, for now traditions are being flouted. 
He looks pointedly at the orc who scowls and spits. We are to test you. Do you agree to the test of the bogomil? You cannot refuse. They lay you on the ground and tie your arms and legs to wooden stakes. A wild stallion is then brought in. It stamps and snorts and kicks, then rushes to where you are trapped. Roll one die for the position of your right arm, then throw one die for where the horse's hooves hit. If the two numbers match, you have been hit. Deduct four points from your stamina and mark off two poison units. Repeat this procedure for your left arm and for both your legs. If you are hit twice, you die and your quest is over. If you survive, you are released and pronounced worthy to take the second test of the Bogomil. You are given a mount and you all gallop off in a group. So it's one in six, four times. Might get hit once, it'd be unlucky to get hit twice. Okay, I've missed my right arm. The horse has missed my left arm, missed my right leg, and missed my left leg. Hooray. The Bogomils ride hard and fast. Eventually, you reach a settlement of stone buildings in the shape of a rough circle. Horns are sounded and many other riders appear. You are told to dismount and are made to stand in a clearing in the middle. Then the crowd parts to let in a large white stallion which obviously has not been tamed. It bucks, kicks, jumps and twists. One of the riders announces, Busifax. You must ride this creature for as long as you can. Two horsemen lean down and catch you by the upper arms. They lift you up between them and drop you into the horse's saddle. Throw one die. If you throw a one or a two, you are unseated and crash to the ground. Deduct two points from your stamina. You are then remounted in the same way. Repeat this procedure four more times. If you are unseated a total of three times, the third time you are winded by the fall and cannot move, the horse kills you with a blow from its hoof. Okay, so... Another classic Luke Sharp bit, making you roll a dice a bunch of times because he just doesn't have that many ideas. So, first of five, I'm fine. Second of five, I'm fine. Third of five, I'm fine. Fourth of five, I'm also fine. This is going very well. Fifth of five, I'm fine. So that was pretty lucky. Zero stamina lost from the bucking bronco. If you survive, mark off one poison unit. So we're now down to 14 poison units. Almost halfway through the poison counter and we still haven't made it to the first maze. You are dusted off and led to a large gate. Ah, we're actually at the maze. The gates of the Bogomil maze open. Inside you are confronted by two huge stone statues of rearing horses. You see the image of a woman with long white hair. She speaks in formal tones. You have been granted the honour of entering the maze. Seek the medallion and prove your worth as one of Segrek's select. There is one true path through the maze and many dangers. To the blast of trumpets you stride forward. You find yourself in a series of torch-lit tunnels. You can choose to go west, east or north. Which way do you decide to go? Well... My assumption is always that the exit's in the north, so that's where I'm going to go. You walk along the tunnel and notice some odd-looking holes in the walls. Suddenly, a small furry creature rolls out of one of the holes. You watch it carefully as it stretches itself and begins to purr. It looks very sweet. Do you want to stroke it or opt for discretion rather than valour? 
So uh, another little Luke Sharpism, random creatures falling out of the walls. Uh, yeah, we will, I guess, stroke it. I like little furry creatures. When you bend down to stroke it, other similar little creatures appear and rush towards you. However, they stop as the one you are stroking begins to trill with pleasure. They all begin to purr and then retire into their holes. Add one luck point. Helpful. Luck now, ten. Walking on, you go through a metal door that shuts behind you with a soft clunking sound. You are faced with two corridors running north and west, and two doors that will not open in the south and the east. You notice footprints heading north, and you can hear shrieks coming from the western tunnel. Do you want to choose north or west? Oh, nice to actually be presented with a couple of clues. Um, I guess we'll go north, avoiding the shrieks. You take a tight grip on your sword and follow the tracks. They seem to be made by a two-legged creature with large, goat-like hooves. The tracks suddenly disappear into a wall where there is no door visible. You carry on, turn a corner and head west, to stop in astonishment when you see two hoofed feet and a scimitar appearing out of the solid wall. When the body follows, you realise you are facing a horned devil which is blocking the corridor. Do you want to run back and go the other way? In which case you should deduct two points from your stamina, or do you want to fight the creature? Well, I like that we've been given the opportunity to run away, so that is what I am going to do. Um, the Horned Devil actually only has a skill of eight and a stamina of six, so I ought to be able to fight it. But I like being given the opportunity to run away, so that's what I'm going to do. You follow the West Corridor. The screams get louder, but you can see nothing. Suddenly, a bone drops on your shoulder. You look up and see a skeleton spread-eagled on the roof with long metal stakes impaling it there. You shudder as you see a metal spike shoot up out of the ground ahead of you and slam into the roof. Okay, so we look up and we see the skeleton before we see the big spikes sticking up out of the floor. Seems to be the implication of this. Okay, it's so first drafty. It's so very first drafty. Uh, throw one die for your position and throw one again for the place where another stake shoots out. If the two dice rolls match, you are speared to the ceiling and killed. Oh, he loves this mechanic so much. Really loves it. And we get to do it twice more because, of course, we do. Because if there's one thing Luke Sharp loves, it's making you do the same thing multiple times. So, uh, first spike misses me. Second spike misses me. Third spike misses me. If you survive, you rush through another door which shuts behind you. You are at a crossroads. Tunnels lead north and west, but there are shut and sealed doors to the south and east. The northern passage is short, and at the end of it you can see an open door leading to some more tunnels. Do you want to go north or west? We'll go north. Tunnels open up to the north and west. To the north, in a glimmer of daylight, you see what appears to be a body lying in the middle of the path. To the west is a figure standing stock still. Which tunnel do you choose, north or west? We'll go north again. You approach the body. It is that of a woman dressed like a fellow adventurer and probably one of Segrek's select. You can see no wounds on her, but she seems to have no bones left in her body. Ugh. Floppy, floppy corpse. There is a brighter gleam of daylight here. Do you want to search the body to see if she has a medallion, or run to the door outside, or head back to the tunnel leading west? Let's search the body. 
you search the body, you find a blue gem and a box marked Trafili with two sprigs of green plant inside it. Okay, so um, first random kit we found, blue gem. Shout out to James Holloway, host of the Monster Man podcast, who always describes the object of a theoretical fantasy quest as being to find the blue jewel. On getting up, you find yourself facing two Bone Crusher beasts. Fight each in turn. So, first Bone Crusher has a skill of 7, stamina of 8. Second Bone Crusher has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 6. He does like making you fight two monsters one after the other as well. He just creates with such a limited palette. And you can do really interesting things with a limited palette. You know, the you know, beautiful black and white illustrations throughout this book. But... Whereas Martin McKenna is producing really interesting work with a limited palette, Luke Sharp is doing the equivalent of finger painting with a limited palette. So, yes, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Bone Crusher Beasts, and um, yeah, again, I noticed that uh, he doesn't actually describe the Bone Crusher Beasts in any way, shape, or form. I think he just assumes that everyone knows exactly what a Bone Crusher Beast looks like. Um, so, mark off two more poison units, down to 12, halfway through the poison count, and rush out of the door. You are standing in a stone trench, bemused. You watch a wisp of smoke transform itself into a figure that greets you. Brave adventurer, you have traversed the maze of the Bogomil, a great feat. If you do not have the medallion, good luck in your search. If you do have the medallion, good luck in your quest for the throne. Fare thee well. The figure disappears and you climb out of the trench. You are in open country. You walk on for many hours and eventually find a good place to rest. So, uh, have failed to find the Bogomil medallion in their maze. Uh, fair enough. Fine. On we go. You build a sheltered camp, eat some provisions, and settle down to sleep. Add four points to your stamina. So provisions now down to six. Stamina now up to 16, thanks to a rack of herb-crusted lamb. You are awakened by a small green and red bird that flutters about and lands in front of you, picks up some charcoal from the fire in its claw, and scratches the A rune on a rock. You know now that it is a messenger from Astragal, Speaking in a high-pitched whistling tone, it says, Greetings, friend. Speed is now of the essence. The medallions are all taken. Make for Sherabbos as fast as you can. You must enter the fortress by fair means or foul. If you already have a medallion, the task will be easier. For help, you must go to... Dot, dot, dot. Mmm. Dot, dot, dot. Vetch. Dot, dot, dot. On no account. Dot, dot, dot. The bird stops, drops the charcoal, and flies away. So that's um, impressively quick work to go from what I assumed was going to be the main bit of the quest to the end of the quest. Fair enough. You set off immediately. After many hours, you come to a fork in the road. Both paths look likely, but which one will you take? The one to the left or the one to the right? Well, we'll go for left even though it's clearly steered as quite badly wrong at some point. Um, yeah, left it is. The path you take leads in the direction of a range of very high mountains. At one point you see a possible track leading down into a heavily forested valley. 
Which path do you wish to follow? Up into the mountains or down into the forest? Well, we've already done forest. Admittedly, it was incredibly brief, but we've done it, so let's do mountains. The path climbs and climbs until you begin to encounter patches of ice and snow. You feel very tired. Deduct one point from your stamina and mark off two poison units on the adventure sheet. Poison now 10. Stamina now 14. Just then you hear what can only be the sound of a dwarf singing. It is coming from a newly worked tunnel that leads into the mountainside. Do you wish to investigate or would you rather press on? We will investigate. The singing is accompanied by the sound of hammering on an anvil. Suddenly the dwarf notices you. He stands squarely in front of you, hammer raised above his shoulder. He is naturally suspicious and asks you, what is your business here? Politely, you ask him to direct you on the correct path for Sherabbos. He muses on the question. So, you avoid the main roads, do you? You must have something to hide. Therefore, you're an enemy of Chinggis. Good. He seems to be pleased with the result of his reasoning. He brightens up and begins hammering at a small metal object. Yes, I know the least frequented route, he goes on, but you will need this. He gives you a small but heavy metal ball attached to a coil of thin wire rope. He wants no payment for it and directs you back up the path. I will say, I think this is already more items than I've found in any previous Luke Sharp book, so he is to be commended for that. You continue on the upward path for a long time. It is difficult and partially blocked here and there with landslides and minor avalanches. Eventually you come to a great icy chasm. On the far side is a raised drawbridge guarded by what looks like an ice warrior. Further scrutiny reveals an obelisk with a hole in the top. Obviously you have to throw something in the hole to get the bridge to lower. If you have a metal ball, there we go. Um, yeah, we do have a metal ball. So, uh, <laughs> a great, uh, great design. Like, when, when will we make this item useful? I know, immediately. You take out the metal ball and swing it over your head, aiming for the top of the obelisk. Throw one die, then throw one die again. If the numbers on the two dice match, you've succeeded first time. If they don't match, then deduct one point from your stamina. And try again as many times as it takes you to succeed. If you give up, you have to take a much longer route down. Absolute favourite mechanic. Rolling dice and seeing if they match. So, uh, we haven't had any doubles rolled this adventure. So actually, I feel like I'm due one. So first die is a five. And a five. <laughs> Excellent. I was indeed due one. Excellent. If you succeed, the drawbridge is lowered over the chasm and the frozen warrior speaks. Pass, stranger. You cross over and follow a path that slopes downwards until eventually it forks. Which way do you go now? To the right or the left? Good old left. You stagger along the rocky path as it drops down into a valley. Ahead you make out a small wisp of black cloud that takes on the shape of a face and you hear a female voice. Forget your quest. Kazan will have its ruler from the line of Chinggis. The mountains begin to rumble and shake and the rocks start to roll and slide down towards you. You rush for cover, throw one die six times, and mark the sequence of numbers you threw on the adventure sheet. This represents the random falls of rock. Now throw one die six times to mark your run for cover. If a number in the second sequence matches its counterpart in the first, a rock has hit you, and you are severely injured. Deduct four points from your stamina, one point from your skill, lose one poison unit. 
you make it unscathed, add one point to your luck. So he's tried to slightly vary the die matching mechanic he loves so very much. We'll be lucky not to get hit on this one. So let's do the numbers for the rocks. So we get a one, a one, a one, a six, a two, and a six. So first rock fall, anything but a one. I get a one. So I've been hit once, reducing my stamina to 10. My skill is now nine. And it's not clear whether you can only be hit by one rock fall or whether you have to continue rolling to see if you get hit by any. I'm going to work on the assumption that you actually have to roll each time. So next rock fall, anything but a one. Get a six, that's fine. Third rock fall, anything but a one. Get a three, that's fine. Fourth rock fall is a six. I get a five. Then it's a two. I get a one. And finally a six. And I get a three. So I have survived the rock fall. I have ten stamina, nine skill. Might be time to quaff that potion of skill. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to quaff the potion of skill to return my skill to 11. And I'm going to eat a sherbet dib dab and a cheese and pickle sandwich. Take my stamina back up to 18, leaving me with four provisions remaining. You carry on down a dry river valley and eventually your route divides into two paths. Do we go left or right? We go left. You stumble down the path for many hours. Then you find yourself overtaking a figure ahead of you. This person is hardly moving, just shuffling along but is well wrapped up against the weather. Just as you are approaching the figure, it topples over. Do you want to help, or would you prefer to pass by in safety and carry on down the valley? Well, I will try and help. You run to help. The figure, a woman, sees you and tries to draw her sword, but she hardly has the strength to pull it out of her scabbard. She lies back, and you offer her a mouthful of water. As she sips it, you see that an arrowhead is lodged in her neck, and that her leather armour is scuffed and torn. She raises her head and speaks in a whisper. I am Baraba of the West Moor. We must get to Sharabas. I am one of the select of Segrek. You see the pallor of death rising in her face. You try to quieten her, but she begins to rave. The medallion! No, you shall not! Then she recovers slightly, and you tell her of your own status. She smiles. I know I am done for. I know. Take the Hulugu medallion! We bequeath it to you. From a pocket, she takes out the medallion and hands it to you. At Sharabasik, the wolfsbane at the cross keys. He will... She shudders, then gasps and dies in your arms. There's been a lot of people dying in our arms in the last couple of episodes. You gaze at the eagle etched on the medallion. On the reverse is a number 1,000. Add two points to your luck. Luck now back to 11... So, we've got the medallion. That's good. The path drops down steeply and then flattens out. After passing a large rock quarry, the land begins to open out. The path then forks. Both directions seem feasible. Do we want to go left or right? Good old left. It's a little bit embarrassing that I have failed entirely to get a medallion on my own merit and have just been gifted one by someone who's clearly much better at adventuring than I am. The path you are following drops down into a dry river valley and then opens out onto a flat plain. You are overtaken by several carts, and you can see and hear yelping dogs and a crowd in the distance. 
All the people seem to be making for a market. Just ahead, there is a roadblock commanded by six orcs who are searching everyone who passes. To the side stands an evil-looking black-cloaked figure, a necromancer. All you can do is stand there wondering what to do. Just then, you notice an elf staring at you. You move away, but he follows and calls out to you. Do you stop and turn around to talk to him, or would you rather hide among the milling throng? Let's see what this elf has to say. You turn to face the elf. He looks a little the worse for wear. He leads you to a bench and you both sit down. Look, I know they're after you. I have the sight. I can help you. I used to be in the court of Segrek, a high elf, no less. You agree to let him help you and he hands you a small black bottle. Drink this. It's the only way to get past the senses of the mad necromancer. The brew blots out his mind delving. We just pretend we're drunk. Time to wish I was drunk. You drink the mixture, which tastes awful. Deduct one point from your stamina. Stamina now, 17. You easily pass through the roadblock, and the elf, who calls himself Lightfinger, tells you he has important information to sell you for ten gold coins. Yeah, I'll bite. You help me out. I've got 45 gold, so I can quite happily spot him ten. Yes, I was happy under Segrek's benevolent rule. I was important then, the elf sighs. He is lost in thought for a moment, then he remembers the gold. I believe that most of the select are dead or captured, and Chingis is feeling confident. But until he kills all the select, he cannot claim the heart of the throne of Kazan. That bequeaths true kingship. You must seek help from the Bithmian Vetch, or Mandrake Wolfsbane. Sharabas is now a city of intrigue and deception. Mamleks, necromancers, and creatures of the dark abound. A good luck, and if you succeed, remember me. Lightfinger Greel, if you need a Chancellor. So, uh, yeah, pretty helpful. I've given, been given some names to uh, look out for. That's nice. You walk on for a while. Eventually, you find yourself catching up with a cart that is creaking and rumbling over the cobbled road in front of you. The land is too flat for you to get off the road and still avoid suspicion. Up ahead, in the distance, you can see two trolls wearing the panther livery of Chinggis and collecting some sort of troll. They stop the cart in front of you and charge the driver an exorbitant three gold coins before allowing him to pass. You guess that the trolls are pocketing most of the money for themselves. There is no way of circling around the trollish toll-gatherers without being noticed, so you must try to pass. Not so fast, friend. We've been told to pick up any lone strangers passing through unless you make it worth our while. So, uh, if you do not wish to encourage their venality, you can do so. It's up to you how much you give them. So, uh, you decide to offer them a bribe, deduct what you think will be adequate. Two dice for the amount they would regard as sufficient. If I offer them 12 gold, I will definitely be fine. I fancy a little bit of jeopardy and hanging on to some of my money. So I'm going to give them 10 gold and see whether they'll accept that. A 6 for the first die. A 6 for the second die. So, yeah, unfortunate. I've generally had a pretty good run of luck on this adventure, given the number of opportunities for an instant death, so I can't complain too much about that. Thwarted, the trolls decide to arrest you. You pull out your sword with one swift move. Fight each troll in turn. So the first troll has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 9. Second a skill of 9 and a stamina of 10. So uh, good job I quaffed that potion of skill. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the trolls. I was reduced to 9 stamina points. Having won, I must mark 2 poison units off on the adventure sheet. 
poison now down to seven. If you win, the cart driver spits in the direction of the dead bodies and takes back the gold you had been forced to hand over, and offers you a ride on the cart. Scum. Chingis's lackeys making us pay illegal tolls. Pray the gods send us a true ruler soon. You see, putting your trust in a single, all-powerful individual is just not a very good plan, because even if you get a good one this time, there's absolutely no guarantee you'll get a good one the following time. It's uh, it's not a good system of government. Rise up, rise up. Cart drivers of the world, you have nothing to lose but your heads. He looks at you sideways and you can believe you detect a twinkle in his eye. The cart climbs over a rise and you get your first clear view of Sherabas, a city dominated by its fortress. Flaxwort the driver has guessed that you are one of the select and decides to help you get into the city. To that end, he disguises you as his assistant. They're looking for lone adventurers. I can't even remember what voice I did for Flaxwort. That's terrible. I'm getting a bit frazzled. I've been recording for like an hour and a half. They're looking for lone adventurers. So if you put on this apron and cap and cover up that blade there. It being market day, the city is crowded with carts. The orcs at the gate only give you a brief glance before putting a small chalk mark on the side of your cart. The road forks and Flaxwort asks you which way you wish to go. There is a picture of Sherebus. I have to say, it looks considerably more Tudor than I was expecting, given the sort of quite Eastern and Central European vibe that is a feature quite commonly of Luke Sharp's work. One of the best features of Luke Sharp's work, if I'm honest, is the fact that he draws from a slightly different uh, set of cultural stereotypes than is um, usual for fantasy authors working in uh, an English medium. Yeah, this looks very much like a medieval or Tudor city. I think it's a nice illustration. It's probably one of the weaker ones I've seen so far, but it's still, I genuinely like it. It's nice and characterful. Good old left, anyway. We'll, we'll ask Flaxwort to drive his left. Flaxwort drops you off in a busy lane close to a small trading post. He wishes you success and drives off. You look around, conscious of the fact that Chingis must have many paid informers. You set off, trying to look purposeful, but the lane you are following soon divides. Do you want to head for the trading post or carry straight on down the lane or turn left into another road? Well, trading post sounds interesting to me. That's where we will go. You look around the trading post. Tacked up on the walls are signs proclaiming that we buy anything. You'll probably need gold in a city like Sherabas. Do you have anything to trade? Uh, so, uh, there's a list of prices. A yellow gem gets you two. A red gem gets you five. A green gets you ten. A blue gets you fifteen. And any ring gets you five gold coins. So, trade in the old blue gem. Taking us up to fifty gold. You come out of the trading post and bump into a small bedraggled boy. He offers his services as a guide for two gold coins. Yes, please. Guide always useful. Quite enjoying how useful gold has actually turned out to be in this adventure. Yeah, that is a nice a nice thing. You've managed to get a lot more out of it than just, you know, buying a list of items, some of which will turn out to be useful and some of which won't. So, uh, yeah, credit where credit's due. He's doing interesting things with gold. You agree to take him on, and he stands there determined to have his money in advance. You get out your bag of gold coins when suddenly another small boy runs past you and grabs it. 
They both disappear into the crowd. Deduct all the gold coins you have except your lucky piece. My lucky, lucky piece. So zero, zero gold. Oh, dear. Sudden reversal of fortune, but I can't complain. Um, That's genuinely quite a nice thing. And I'm going to choose to believe that the boys are going to spend it on food and medicine for their sick mother. Um, yeah, that's classic, classic town encounter. Getting fleeced by criminal locals. Can't complain about that either. There is a large crowd of people in front of you watching a procession, but you cannot see anything where you are standing. Do you want to push through the crowd or ignore it and head for the fortress? Um, I am being the most country bumpkin tourist imaginable, so I might as well just push through the crowd and see what the procession is. Fulfill the stereotype. You force your way through to get a better view of the procession. A Kazanid beside you is describing what's going on to a blind companion. There he is now, that Chinggis filth. I'm not surprised he doesn't trust anyone. If I was Vetch, I'd kill him now. Vetch is standing over there. A little to our right, with Mandrake Wolfsbane, who's smoking his infernal pipe. You look across. Vetch is well clad in fighting armour, while Wolfsbane is dressed like a blacksmith. The procession ends and the two men separate. Do you wish to follow either of them? Um, sure. Yeah, why not? So there's a picture of Chinggis on a palanquin uh, being drawn by some shaven-headed men with top knots. He's got a little panther following alongside and a couple of tiny, tiny goblins with sweet little bows on the palanquin, uh, which is far more adorable than it realistically should be. Again, there is a slightly amateurish quality to it. Slightly cartoonish quality to it, but it's pretty lively and pretty good. I like it. I think Vetch was the one we were told to find, so we will follow him. Vetch is easy to follow. He seems to command great respect from the native Kazanids. At one point, he makes a swaggering orc step aside and into a puddle. This pleases the crowd in the street no end. You catch up with him and confide to him the nature of your quest. You've come to the right person, he replies. Tell no one else, for there are many spies here. Follow me. He leads you into a ramshackle building, takes you inside, and tells you to wait in a room. Do you want to wait patiently, or do you want to follow him? Well, follow him. I suspect skullduggery. Uh, I don't normally call out the... Um, the, the miniature page art that uh, sort of breaks up the paragraphs on pages where there there isn't a full illustration. But I do want to call out the fact that one of them here in this book is a flying bird armed with a dagger, which I just think is really cool. I mean, it's not hard to imagine corvids, crows, ravens, rooks, ticky rooks. It's very easy to imagine... Uh, a flock of rooks, each of them clutching a little knife, descending on you. Yeah, it's a great image. Anyway, we're going to try and work out where Vetch has gone. You sneak out and walk along a corridor. Ahead is another door that is partly open. You peek in to see Vetch with an orc. They are unchaining a hideous gargoyle. The gargoyle senses your presence, screams and then rushes out after you. You run into a dead end and pull out your sword. So the gargoyle has a skill of 9 and a stamina of 10. I'm going to roll some dice and curse the inevitable betrayal of my good friend Vetch. Bar. 
I have defeated the gargoyle. I took no damage, which is nice. My stamina remains on nine. I guess I'd better eat a few provisions to get it back up. Packet of opal fruits and a marathon bar will uh, sort me right out in a retro style. Oh, I've got to mark off one poison as well. Taking my poison units now to six. If you win, the others have now fled, so cautiously you leave the building. Uh, there's a dark lane or a busier, well-lit street. Let's go down the dark lane. Interesting things happen in dark lanes. So I'm led to believe. You walk towards the fortress. The only visible way in seems to entail climbing a long staircase of stone steps that are guarded by a dozen bored-looking orcs with a mammalic captain. You know immediately that you cannot attempt this route. You look around and you notice a woman standing by a tall obelisk and carrying a large basket of flowers. She waves to you. Do you want to approach her? I do indeed. You walk to the obelisk. The woman is young and strong and you notice a sheathed dagger under her cloak. She asks if you want to enter the fortress, adding that she doesn't want to know why, but she knows people who could help for a price. You ask how much and she replies, 25 gold coins. So I don't have any gold coins because I was robbed like... Just a total tourist. Uh, so I'll have to carry on alone. You set off behind a cart, trying to look as much as possible like one of the locals. There are numerous orc patrols and you pass the occasional mamlek. Suddenly a small bird lands on your shoulder, then hops to the ground and into a quiet alley. You follow it and stare as it scrawls the A rune, the sign for Astragal in the dirt. You watch in amazement as the bird proceeds to write a complete message from the wizard. I hope this winged messenger reaches you in time. If you have not already done so, contact one Mandrake Wolfsbane and no other. He is usually to be found smoking a large smelly pipe at the Dragon's Wing Tavern, where my absent-minded brother Wizard Geronicus will be signalling unceasingly from its chimney with puffs of smoke. The bird then hops over to the message, erases it with its wings and flies away. Now, when I actually saw the picture of the city, I think there was genuinely a chimney pot from which puffs of smoke were rising. So great work by Martin McKenna there to uh, weave in a little bit of the, uh, the narrative. So we wander off and find the tavern. The Dragon's Wing Tavern is packed. Several fires are blazing, but the smokiest corner is that part of the room where an old man is sitting with a box on his lap. By his side is another puffing at a smelly pipe. You head for the pair of them. If you have not met them before, the man with the pipe looks at you carefully, then holds out a small crystal that glows red. He introduces himself as Mandrake Wolfsbane and his companion as Geronicus. If you have met the absent-minded mage before, he does not recognise you now. If only there was a way in a gamebook setting to ask the player whether or not they've met a character and then have it play out differently depending on whether they've met them before or not baffling it's the simplest thing in the world you go you head into the tavern have you met Geronicus and mandrake wolfsbane before and if you say yes you go one way and no the other way instead you end up with this really awkward thing where you go here's one way in which reality might play out here in the same paragraph is an alternative way causality might play out you sit down and mandrake begins to brief you Chingis has tried to spellbreak the ancient secret entrances to the fortress. Geronicus alone 
possesses the set of files that points the way and opens the hidden gates for the select. All the others have been taken by the devilish necromancers, who are trying to discover the secrets of the throne. You are the last hope of the Kazanids. You must enter the fortress, with medallion or without, and sit on the throne in order to rid us of the evil of Chinggis and his deadly daughter, Megan Nadur. Now look into your heart and choose a file. So we've got the dagger, the half moon, the cross, and the holy triangle. I'll go for the dagger, because I was stabbed with a dagger. All three of you leave the dragon's wings by a back door through various back streets who approach ever closer to the fortress. Geronicus hands over the file you have chosen and you drink it, feeling it do you good. Standing in front of a rock face, you are drawn through the stone. Unseen forces then lead you down an ancient corridor until eventually you come to a halt. You stand in front of a torchlit panel showing six circles with, on each, the drawing of an animal, the bull of Uruz, the eagle of Hulagu, the fang tiger of Yiganek, the snake of Korkut, the horse of Bogomil, and the dragon of Kazilik. Do you have a medallion? I do! So we deduct 641 from the number on the back of the medallion, which gives 359. A door in front of you slides open. You walk into an antique chamber full of tombs bearing carvings of skeletons. The voice of the heart of the throne speaks. You have passed the first barrier to the throne of Kazan. Now do you possess a second medallion? If you do, place it here. An obelisk rises out of the stone floor. If you have a second medallion, deduct number 874 from the number on the back and go to that paragraph. If you do not, then a door opens in the wall in front of you and you have to enter a strange room full of jars and bottles. So no further medallions, sadly. We are very close, I think, to the end of the adventure, unless there's a strangely elongated hidden coda. The voice echoes in your mind. You are in the chamber of ancient magical spells. Here is where the power of the kings and queens of Kazan is determined. You see a table with a row of three bottles and another row of three jars on it. The ghostly voice speaks again. True monarchs of Kazan are able to face the dangers of Gnosis. You must now choose the contents of one bottle and one jar, mix the materials from the two and drink the resultant brew. Beware, for three of the mixtures are deadly. You must perform this feat twice. We have a choice of volcano dust, a thousand fathom seawater and mist from the Mithria forest to mix with Eye of Newt, Viper's Tongue, or Ground Dragon's Claw. So, Eye of Newt is a classic. Let's go for Eye of Newt and 1,000 Fathom Seawater and see what that nets us. Okay, that gives me the power of being invulnerable to sword strike. Okay, second mixture. Um, I will go with... I'm going to avoid the Viper's Tongue because of the links with poison. So I'm going to go for the dragon's claw and the mist from Mithria Forest. The power of fortune. You have drunk the mixture that gives you this power. In any situation that depends on luck, you will be lucky. So that's worked out nicely. You stand in front of a wall of green shimmering smoke and a voice announces, you have passed through the heart of the throne and have no rival. You have proved your bravery. Walk forth and complete the ascent to the throne for you must be greeted paraded and adulated. Good use of adulated. 
The mist clears and a metal door opens. You step out and are met by two mamliks holding longswords. One of them stabs you before you can move. If you have the power of invulnerability to sword strike, you are not harmed. Otherwise, deduct four points from your stamina and mark off one poison unit. The mamliks rush off in opposite directions, sounding the alarm. Uh, okay, and we will have left right. We'll go left again because it's actually been steering us unbelievably well this far. The corridor comes to a corner and you peek round to see a room filled with a gaggle of dungeon beasts. And again, no idea of what they look like. You just have to imagine. They scuttle up to you, okay, lots of legs, and block your progress. You cannot fight them all. There is a large open window to one side of the room. Do you have the power of storm bringing? I do not, so I've got to go the other way. You walk along until you come to a halt in front of four orcs guarding a door. Do you have a power to change metal objects? You can change their spears to look like gold. Uh, the orcs will forget about you and begin to fight amongst themselves. If you have the power of persuasion, you whisper softly to them that their whole aim in life is to let you pass, and they do. If you have neither of these powers, fight each orc in turn. So, four orcs, all with skill 7, stamina 6, because obviously he was running out of imagination at this point and going, we'll just have them all be exactly the same. So, it's effectively one skill 7 opponent with 24 stamina. Hey ho, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated all four of the orcs. I took no damage. Uh, we're getting towards the tail end of things, so I'm going to eat my penultimate provision and trust that a whole suckling pig will fortify me for what's ahead that will raise my stamina to 17 uh, i have to mark off three poison units i now have three poison units remaining very exciting you walk through the door and find yourself facing a scene of carnage mamliks knights trolls and goblins all lie dead in front of a necromancer who is laughing wildly he spins around, sees you, and hurls a mass of small knives at you. Test your luck. I am automatically lucky. All the knives miss. This is Zizadek, the mad master of the undead beings. He turns himself into a dragon of substance and lumbers forward to attack. So, Zizadek has a skill of 11 and a stamina of 14. This is effectively a straight 50-50. I should win because I've got slightly more stamina with 17 stamina, but yeah, skill 11, stamina 14... This is a real roll of the dice. With a tremendous sense of trepidation, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated Zizidek. Uh It all kind of came together when I realised that, given that I'm always lucky, I could actually, every single time I won a combat round, I could make a luck roll and automatically succeed to do additional damage. And every time I lost a combat round, I could make a luck roll and automatically succeed to suffer less damage. So I have been reduced to 12 stamina. Zizidek is dead. I have to mark off two poison, leaving me with one poison unit remaining. So if you win, the body decays to the accompaniment of an otherworldly scream. You step over the other bodies to find two doors facing you. Do you want to go the left or right? Come on, left. Don't steer me wrong at this very crucial moment. You open the door to a room containing three gremlins. They comprise Chingus's personal bodyguard. Suddenly a fourth, which has been hiding behind the door, strikes you in the side with a short sword, then runs off as the others attack. Uh, if you have the power of a vulnerability to sword strike, you fight as normal. If not, then deduct one point from your skill. Fight each of the gremlins in turn. So, um... 
The good news is the gremlins have a skill of four each. The bad news is, even if I win, I have to mark off two poison units on the adventure sheet. And that means that I will almost certainly kill the gremlins, who are unbelievably rubbish as a personal bodyguard, and then expire thanks to the poison. Well, I've been recording for best part of two hours. There's no way I'm going to invoke the sausagey fingered bookmark rule. I will shake my fist in fury at the skies as once again I come so agonizingly close to finishing one of these fighting fantasy books on a recorded playthrough but alas it's not to be again. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is definitely the best League Sharp book I've read. doesn't mean it's good, it just means it's the best. I'm going to go away and delve into its secrets, if indeed there are any secrets, and I'll come back to you with some closing remarks in just a few seconds. Oh, what a disappointment, but I am pleased that I enjoyed that rather more than I was expecting. So, tatty bye! As I completed my second playthrough of Daggers of Darkness, a strange feeling came over me, one I wasn't entirely expecting. It took me a while to identify it, but eventually I realised what was happening. I was having a nice time. This wasn't something I was expecting. Chasms of Malice was so utterly devoid of merit that it was difficult to approach Daggers of Darkness with anything approaching an open mind. Nonetheless, I couldn't deny the fact that I was enjoying myself to a considerable degree. I think you can possibly hear me getting more on side with this book as I go through it in the playthrough. I'm writing this and recording it before I edit the audio of my playthrough, so it'll be interesting to see if that comes across in my delivery when I do actually do the edit. Don't get me wrong, there's still a lot wrong with Daggers of Darkness, but unlike his previous attempts at game books, Luke Sharp has managed to do enough things right to overcome the weaknesses. This was a really interesting book for me to analyse because it illustrates which elements of gamebook design might be considered fundamental to my personal enjoyment. Your mileage may vary, but I think I can make a case for the good bits overcoming the bad with specific examples. In particular, it's very illustrative to consider this book in comparison with Chasms of Malice. The first absolutely key element that Daggers of Darkness gets right is that it's actually fairly easy to finish. I beat it on my second playthrough, although I did only have one unit of poison remaining. Even though the systems are very rough around the edges, there's nothing in there that acts as an insurmountable barrier to actually getting to the end. Now, I don't mind hard game books. House of Hell is very challenging. It's also one of my all-time favourite game books, but if you're going to make a book hard, then your design needs to be absolutely on point. House of Hell's design is a thing of beauty, a wonderful and intricate book that's a joy to explore. But if you're not able to put in the time and effort to make something that complex and crucially to put in the time and effort to make sure that the elements are balanced, then I think erring on the side of a lower difficulty is definitely the way to go. My own books are often quite difficult, but I deliberately design them in such a way that you can get to an ending relatively straightforwardly, especially if you're willing to fudge a few dice rolls along the way. And it reminds me of something from when I was playing video games as a child. 
I'm not generally someone blessed with a super abundance of patience. If I'm not enjoying something, I tend to drop it fairly quickly. And so if a game was hard, I really needed to be enjoying what I was doing to persevere with it. On the other hand, I played and quite enjoyed a number of fairly ropey games because they were easy enough that I could beat them, and beating games feels nice. I played the Amiga version of Golden Axe through a bunch of times because I just enjoyed the feeling of being a barbarian beating up warriors and monsters. The fact that it was ultimately a less than stellar port of, to be fair, a less than stellar arcade game, didn't hugely matter. I could play it and I could enjoy the good bits, particularly the magic powers that would blast everything on screen in a pyrotechnic orgy of excess. Now, as an adult, I poured about 60 or 70 hours into beating Bloodborne because not only did I love the setting of that game, but the combat was so engaging that I was prepared to bang my head against the difficulty and enjoy my incredibly slow progression through the game. Had that combat been less appealing to me, there's no chance I'd have got through the first area. And indeed, I've got a good friend who loved the look, loved the lore, but just did not get on with the combat, and he bounced off it straight away. Daggers of Darkness reminds me a lot of Golden Axe. There's obvious issues, but the fact that it's not that hard makes me feel much more charitable towards it. I can overlook the mistakes, at least to an extent, and focus on just enjoying the thing that the book does get right. One of the biggest weaknesses of Chasms of Malice was how bland and boring everything was, the endless parade of identical caves and tunnels. And that's something that has definitely been addressed here, and it adds weight to my theory that dungeon adventures are actually the hardest thing to do well in role-playing games and adjacent media. Daggers of Darkness takes you on a wild journey through mountains, grassy plains, forests, a couple of mini-dungeons, then into a vibrant city before putting you through a final dungeon for the finale. There's so much more variety of encounters. You don't get the same repetitive orcs and dark elves that blighted Chasms of Malice. You get to meet a variety of different people, some good, some evil, many somewhere in between. Because of that variety, it makes exploring the book much less of a chore. I was able to remember fairly easily where I had been and make different decisions on my second playthrough because the discrete section stood out. I wasn't just wandering through endless identical tunnels trying to remember whether I'd fought this particular pair of orcs before. Even the dungeon sections feel like they've been thought about a little bit more. There's still plenty of left-right decisions, but at least some of them have a little marker to differentiate them, a noise you can hear down one passage, a plinth you can see beyond a door in the other passage. It's still not brilliant design, but it has made enormous steps in the right direction, and knowing that the book is eminently beatable takes away just a lot of the stress. Taking a wrong turn might kill you, but equally it might just give you a slightly different adventure, and that encourages exploration. There's lots of ways to approach the final challenge as well, and my route to it on my second playthrough was very different to the route I took on my first, and that was a really lovely surprise. Game books have a tendency to become more linear as they get towards the final steps, and here it feels a lot more open, and that's genuinely an interesting and fun bit of design. 
Having said that this is a massive improvement, I still need to call out Luke Sharp's prose style. Again, it's better than it was previously, but it's still doing its very best to try and suck the life out of things. His description is flat and stilted, and terse to the point of feeling more like the minutes of a committee meeting than a high fantasy adventure. There are so many points where even a couple more words or the use of a more varied lexicon would have just added so much. It's particularly noticeable after reading the first Destiny Quest book, which paints a much more vivid picture of the world. It's a shame because there's a strong aesthetic struggling to escape the strictures of the bland style. The Kingdom of Kazan has a Near East influence, informed by Luke Sharp's background in studying Near and Middle Eastern history. I remember how much I enjoyed Sword of the Samurai with its Japanese historical trappings, and I think, with a bit of work, this could have been a similarly vibrant setting, but it just never quite gets beyond a thin veneer in the prose. And that's doubly frustrating, because the background to this book is great. The idea that the succession to the throne is handled by a trial, undertaken by a group of chosen people... That's a wonderful idea, a properly baroque and impractical fantasy system for choosing a new despot. The idea that the vizier is trying to murder the chosen ones to usurp the throne makes perfect sense in this context. In the last episode I talked about how well I respond to intrinsic rather than extrinsic motivations, and undertaking a trial to prove yourself worthy to take the throne definitely fits as an intrinsic motivation. The whole business with evil assassins trying to frustrate your progress through the world adds an additional layer of danger and means that you don't really have the option to just nope out of your quest. If you offered me a chance to prove myself worthy to seize the throne in real life, I'd already be getting into my pyjamas and heading back to bed. If you then tell me that there's a bunch of maniacs with poison knives going to try and kill me in order to prevent my taking the throne, whatever I choose to do, I might grudgingly accept successfully gaining the reins of power would be my only real option for continued survival. I might also just hide. As part of the style, things in a Luke Sharp book occur and resolve very quickly. It's actually faintly galling to me that it doesn't work worse than it does here. I've spent so long trying to map out a village where the order in which you talk to people had an impact on later encounters and opened up new options and new sections of the adventure. And meanwhile, Luke Sharp's happily just telling you, you arrive at the village, you talk to four people, then you leave in the space of about a hundred words. He opts for a very zoomed out perspective on the action, where I would usually prefer to zoom in because that's where emotion happens. He is at least consistent in his approach. You don't get the feeling of whiplash that sometimes comes from some elements of a story being very detailed and others being dealt with very quickly. It's not my favourite stylistic approach, but it does create a fast-flowing narrative and allow for a lot of different encounters. My books tend to run fairly short in terms of actual number encounters because I tend to focus on trying to make those encounters as rich as I possibly can within the strictures of a game book. This is a different approach. I don't think it's a worse approach necessarily, but it does create a very different ambience to things. Now let's look at the systems. Traditionally an area where Luke Sharp has really struggled. 
The good news is that the poison system, it just works. It's a neat idea, and because combat almost always results in being more poisoned, it incentivizes you to try and avoid getting into too many fights, and that incentivizes you to explore. Happily, there's plenty of ways to avoid combat throughout the book, and the poison system adds an element of danger to every fight, even though the majority of them are fairly easy. There's a strong feeling that you can win the battle but lose the war, and I really like that. Whether by good judgement or luck, he's created a system which adds stakes to every single fight, even the ones where you're just beating up horrid little goblins. It's a much more elegant system than the time units in Star Strider. In that book, it felt completely random what activities actually cost you time. In Daggers of Darkness, there's a pleasing feeling that your poison count is related to stuff your character does. When you get stressed, when you get hurt, when you get into fights, when you exert yourself, all of these will tend to give you poison units. It feels incorporated into the world in a way that the time units never did but it serves exactly the same purpose. Added to which, a mysterious poison coursing through your veins is also more stylistically appealing than an arbitrary time limit. It's got emotional affordances that an alarm clock almost never carries. Now, the medallion system is a bit odd. On the one hand, it doesn't work at all. The ability to walk away from combat is weighed down by almost crippling downsides, and the wording never makes it clear exactly how you are to implement it, or at least it's not clear to me. It's a terrible version of a theoretically interesting mechanic, one where you can avoid death, but at a cost. The problem is that the cost is so high that it's clear you're only postponing death, and probably not even for that long. Thankfully, you can completely ignore this aspect of the medallions and just go about your business. With ten provisions and a magical potion on hand, you're not likely to ever need to invoke the medallion's power. There is a tough fight at the end, but you've cashed in your medallions at that point, so it doesn't matter. If the author had made the rest of the book even slightly harder, I think the medallion system would suddenly no longer be optional, and then it would get very irritating very quickly. As it is, the medallions are simply adventure tokens that help you get through the latter stages of the adventure by opening a couple of secret sections. I don't think that they're even fully required. I think you can actually beat the book without finding a single one. And only three of them, as far as I can tell, are actually obtainable, and only two are in the much-hyped mazes. And that's actually a fun idea, not least because trekking through six mini-dungeons would probably get boring and repetitive. I like the idea that the world has six medallions, but they're spread out, and your adventure being more limited in scope means that you will only come across a maximum of three. The two mazes are mazes in the true sense of the word. They both have easy solutions that you can find at earlier points in the text. There's a clue for one of them in the artwork that accompanies the text. I love this sort of thing. It's great to incorporate the art into the story, especially as this was something that you couldn't do anything like so easily in computer RPGs of the period with their very primitive graphics. Neither maze is a particularly complex dungeon, but they each have a few interesting challenges, and the fact that there's a secret solution to both makes the apparently random nature of the environment much easier to allow. 
you get to feel like a proper hero in a story when you know the secret. Without those solutions, the mazes wouldn't be particularly interesting, but thanks to their relatively modest size, they're at least easy enough to brute force your way through if you miss both hints. It's great to see some callbacks and some sense that your actions might have consequences down the line as well. There's a memorable encounter with some bird people that gets called back not once but twice in respect of one of the dungeons. And I did like feeling as though making friends with someone has a potent and enduring positive effect on the story. Astragal the wizard is another matter entirely. Stupidly powerful wizards who can't be bothered to do their own dirty work is a constant bugbear of fantasy fiction, arguably going back to Gandalf, and it's not one I find particularly appealing, at least when it's not Gandalf. And I think the book ends pretty strong as well, because once you get your two medallions, it opens up the chance to skip some elements of the final section, and allows you to avoid the quite fun potion-mixing game, and simply choose a couple of skills from the list, enabling you to tune your character to the encounters that you know are coming up. This is something I really like in a design space, creating two different means of getting to the same point, one easy and one more difficult. So if you haven't got the second medallion, that's okay. You can still get the skills that are basically necessary, but you're going to need a little bit of luck or you'll need to go through the potion table on repeated playthroughs to work out exactly which magical mixture leads to which skill and it felt very good on the second playthrough to have that second medallion and be able to pick exactly the right skills that would help with the route I'd taken on my previous playthrough. Other routes are available and exploring those was also kind of fun when I was going through the book with a bit more of a fine-tooth comb. Sadly, it's not all learning from past mistakes, as the author recapitulates some key weaknesses from Chasms of Malice. There's a lot of chance for random death in this book, either by failing luck rolls or falling foul of his peculiar love affair with punishing those who dare to roll the same value on two dice. I can only assume he was savaged by a Yahtzee set as a child, because he definitely hates dice that roll the same number. It's not quite as punishing as Chasms of Malice, thankfully, but he's got a mechanic he likes and boy is he going to use it. He sprinkles in a few bits where you're rolling dice and comparing totals. That's fine. And the good work surrounding these random dice murder gauntlets does a lot to make them feel less oppressive, but the design still comes across as rudimentary and repetitive. He's just not very good at designing systems. His fights are almost exactly as bland as they were in previous games. He doesn't really grasp that a fight with two enemies at the same time is a different challenge than fighting two enemies back to back, nor does he seem to realise that if you fight two monsters with the same skill and health back to back, that's effectively just one monster with twice the health. I don't know why he loves making you fight monsters in pairs one at a time, but he really does. At least most of the fights are not particularly challenging. There's not a combat trick in sight, which honestly is something of a blessing after Chasms of Malice and that book's weird obsession with falling off things to your death. And there's still a lot of... On a different note, if there's one thing I think no one in the 80s could agree on, it's how trolls are to be presented. There's quite a lot of trolls here, 
some designers clearly think of trolls as large and deadly opponents blessed with regenerative powers but little in the way of coherent strategy. Others treat them as orcs but a bit bigger and a bit stupider. In World of Warcraft there are a slightly uncomfortable set of Caribbean stereotypes with genuinely amazing tusks. And here Luke Sharp has them acting more like mercenary troops, scarcely more effective than the average goon but considerably chattier than I'm used to from the average troll. It's impossible to tell whether he's drawing on some specific folklore for his characterization because the text is so frustratingly underwritten. So I ended up with mixed feelings about Daggers of Darkness. It's a real step up from the author's previous attempts, but it's hard not to feel as though adventure game book design still doesn't really come naturally to him. There's everything in here to make a genuinely great entry in the franchise, but it's undercut by his trademark lifeless prose and a design palette that, though wider than before, is still pretty narrow compared to some other people who have fewer credits in the series. He brings a genuinely compelling central conceit to the table on this occasion, but struggles to breathe life into it. He's still struggling with map design as well. There's elements of this book that link together in very strange ways if you actually try and think about the geography. Although there's a much more consistent sense of prior events exerting some influence on future events, it's not really explored in any depth. That said, I did enjoy my time with Daggers of Darkness. It's good enough to make me want to look past the issues, even the big issues, and take away a memory of the best bits. It doesn't feel like anything else in the canon, either mechanically or thematically. For better or worse, a Luke Sharp book is a Luke Sharp book, and the poison is genuinely well handled to create tension and to encourage the player to try and find ways of avoiding fights. I had a good time playing it in the end, I don't even begrudge having to edit down two hours of actual play for the purposes of this podcast. And that is definitely an accolade from a podcaster, because we are all very sick of the sound of our own voice by this point. So, fair play to Luke Sharp, you've done pretty well. That's all for this episode. Next time out, I've got no idea what I'm going to cover, but there will be a bonus episode before we return to Fighting Fantasy with one of my favourite books in the series as a child, Armies of Darkness, so we can all look forward to me having my childhood nostalgia cruelly derailed by reality. If you want to get in touch with me, then please drop me a line at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. If you have the time and the inclination, a review on your podcast provider of choice would be deeply appreciated as well. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.